Hey, what's up, everybody? The microphone works, the camera works, everything works. Isn't that just a Christmas miracle up in this bitch? Hi, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas. This is episode 126 of the Luke Thomas Live Chat. What a fun program we have for you today. We're going to get to whatever, of course, your questions are, but I think there's some UFC 277 stuff. Some MMA gambling stuff, some Dana White stuff, whatever's on your mind. Your chat as much as it is mine. So I appreciate you tuning in. Thank you very much. We'll go for about an hour today with uh, normal questions. I'll, I'll do a quick rundown like I did, I think, the time or two before at the very end. And if you want to leave a donation and put a question on there, certainly you are under no obligation to do so. But if you do, I'll get to that <clears throat> after about the first hour of questions or so. Uh, okay, with that in mind... Let's get this party started, shall we? Hey, there we are. Uh, okay, reminder, thumbs up, subscribe, all the fun stuff. While this is going up and everyone's getting accustomed and, you know, sitting in their chairs or wherever the hell you're watching this, I made notes last time on something you guys had asked me, which was, how are red and blue corners... What the hell? Um, how are red and blue corners assigned? So I actually asked a couple of commissioners in some pretty important states this past week, and they all had the same answer, which is that red and blue corners are actually assigned by the promotion. Now, the commission will get involved in the event that they see that, for example, if you guys may not know this, sometimes the commission can get involved and actually stop a fight from happening or whatnot by virtue of whether or not they perceive it to be competitive enough, right? So there were some questions at the time, like whether the Nevada Commission would make Mayweather-McGregor. In the end, most folks thought that they would because, you know, hello, they're money-grubbing whores. But on the other side of the equation, there was still a question of, like, you got Mayweather, maybe the best boxer of his generation, and, and then some against a guy with zero pro boxing experience, although he obviously was a decorated mixed martial artist. Would the commission allow that kind of thing to happen? There's other bouts that have been stopped that were usually not the regal kind, more like the low-end kind of some promoter doing something a little bit shady or just negligent. So what they did tell me was they will look at who is in the red corner and who is in the blue corner, and then if need be, they might intervene about who goes where. But really, it goes down to the promotion. So my understanding is, you know, you'd have to ask the UFC directly. I'd have to talk to someone there or Bellator or whoever. But that they'll probably start with the main event or whoever's leading the card, assign corners that way, right? A side, B side, right? So, you know, obviously, you know where the champion would go in a certain order, and then they would build the card out from there. But ultimately, the commission can have a say in who's the corner, but the let's say the rough draft of, of it, or even you know something close to the final draft, is presented by the promotion, and the promotion will put them. Also, there could be reasons where they have to group people together in certain rooms to share for, um, you know, walk out. Like you know, they'll have certain fighters in one room and have certain fighters in another, and how they make that is like you know who's got alliances and who doesn't, who would be trouble, who wouldn't, all kinds of stuff. But um, they also might want to group them A and B side depending on how they have to make and balance those weighted issues there. But it's a promotion issue. The commission has say over, but typically does not weigh in. That is my understanding. So there is your answer to the question of red and blue corners getting assigned. I hope that answers everything you're looking for. All right? Okay, not a moment to waste. So let us get to it. All right. 
Uh, the first one's a long one, but I will get to it. All right, hello, Luke. In regards to the uh, Oliveira and Makachev fight, it seems many fans and analysts alike are characterizing it as a BJJ versus wrestling matchup and saying things like, quote, their skill sets counter each other. Uh, can Islam use his wrestling to avoid the submissions of Oliveira? But from what I've seen, this fight is a wrestling BJJ and judo versus BJJ matchup. I would say even that is not quite right, but okay. Um, specifically, Habib and Islam, they not only have phenomenal wrestling, but they are also great submission grapplers, have trained BJJ. Well, they've trained Sambo. Um, and, you know, they've trained with jiu-jitsu guys, no gi grappling, whatever. And have been learning judo for most of their lives on top of that. Yes. From what you've learned from watching them, would you tell people who might look at fighters like Islam and Habib as just wrestlers? And what do you think it means in regards to Oliveira versus Islam fight? Well, first of all, Oliveira has wrestling too. Not not on the same level as Islam. But the idea that he doesn't have wrestling is not true. I mean, with all of these fights, I mean, what year is it? It's not 1993 anymore. Like, you know, it's very rare. Even with a guy like Paul Craig, who is a heavy... Jiu-jitsu guy, even then, it's a certain kind of jiu-jitsu for the most part. It's a lot of guard game. It's not a lot of offensive takedowns and then working on top. I mean, I, I mean that can happen, but typically it's not. Uh, and then on when when that doesn't work, he's trying to power through with strikes on the feet. You know, it's, it's really a complimentary game. And I made this point um, when I did the Extra Credit podcast, the last episode, talking about Paul Craig, how it kind of reminded me of like a Charles Oliveira light. Obviously, there are... Massive differences between Charles Oliveira and Paul Craig, but one of the things that reminded me watching Paul Craig was actually just how complete Charles Oliveira's game is, or at least has become. Certainly it was much more grappling and submission-oriented earlier in his run, but now, yes, he can flop to guard, and he often does as a sort of like get-out-of-jail-free card, and sometimes people don't want to go down to his guard, and it kind of helps him recover a little bit. We've all seen that, like in the Justin Gaethje fight or some other ones as well. Um, he is obviously a nasty attacker onto the back and can finish there quite easily. He can do limb extensions like we saw against Tony Ferguson. But the reality is it's also the forward pressure he put on the feet. It's the striking. And the thing that actually binds his entire game together is the clinch. That really is, in some ways, almost the nucleus of it. It's not the most powerful part of his game, although it's very good. But it's actually what binds everything together. So, like, even then, calling him a BJJ guy, it's like, okay, like, if it came down to that, would that be a very valuable thing for him to have and use and potentially could play a very significant role in this contest? Yes, of course. But he's probably going to try and win on the feet for as long as the fight is on there, and he might prefer to keep it there depending on how things go uh, in the grappling context. So, you know, <clears throat> it's not unfair to say that, and I'm sure they wouldn't mind, that if you wanted to call someone like Islam a wrestler or somebody who has good wrestling and has wrestling-based attacks? Yes, of course. But he passes. He can find the back. They work from uh, these sort of half positions of leg rides. Um, they do a lot more than... I mean, it's, it's frankly quite silly, you know. <laughs> the question is, like, what will be the most meaningful uh, weapons and where will the phases of the fight be? And that one's really hard to tell. Obviously, if it goes into Oliveira's guard, where then striking can happen but is limited, right? He could potentially, you know, slash an elbow from underneath or something like that. But in general, that would be more of a clear jiu-jitsu kind of circumstance for him. And Islam, um, you know, uh, sort of whatever Sambo and Nogi grappling he has to combat that. Yeah, sure, that, that would change the... That would make it a little bit more simple. But the fight start on the feet... Um, Islam could win on the feet, although I think if it stays on the feet, that's probably Charles Oliveira's fight to lose at that point. It might not even go there. It might be a striking contest for as long as it lasts. Look at Colby and Kamaru. Like, are they wrestlers? Yes, of course. Look at their first fight. Look at much of their second fight. 
it's predominantly all striking. So, you know, the, the, these are really, really, really outdated ways of thinking about it. I mean, here's just, just the reality of it. I've been covering this sport for 15 years. I've got, you know, moderately informative training experience, you know, for whatever that is worth. I watch tape all the time. I watch fights all the time. The shit is complex. Like, I understand why folks are tempted to kind of boil down someone's identity to a style or a couple of them just as a means of simplifying the conversation. I, I get it. Not mad at it. I understand it. It's fine. But it's not really an accurate reflection of what's happening. It's not, it's not reality. The reality is it is myriad. It is complex. It is, it is mixed. It, I mean, that word is included for a reason. Um, so, and even then, like, when you say wrestling, what kind of wrestling are you talking about? Like, Habib does have a double leg, but he and his family, they're the king of single leg, single leg balancing acts. Right, they're real big on getting to the single, forcing you to balance, taking out the post leg, um, and then from there they have a, a sort of a different set of universal rides on top, and wrist catching and ground and pound series, and and what they're trying to make you do. Like all kinds of wrestling are not the same. Frankie Edgar doesn't wrestle like that. I mean, he's got some things that are like that, but they're pretty different as well. Conversely, like Max Holloway is not really a wrestler, but look at the wrestling he used against Frankie Edgar. Or sorry, excuse me. Um. Yair Rodriguez. And of course, there are cage tactics that everyone kind of borrows from the other and everyone's trying to sort of see, but there's wrestling out in the open. There's doubles, there's singles, there's high crotch, there's wrestling along the fence, there's wedge positions, there's uh, staggered stance positions, there's hip crashing positions. I mean, you know, what does that even mean? These are all generalities that make the conversation kind of possible and simplified. These are not accurate diagnoses of what is happening. Uh, Luke, we're talking about Usman Nurmagomedov. Okay, is he now the best prospect outside of the UFC, or are there still others out there that are better or should take a look at? Better or worse, up to you to decide. I will tell you again, I did this on the Extra Credit Podcast. I'm trying to think of innovative ways to make that better. I've got some ideas I'm going to use for next time. But uh, yeah, how about, and I'm, if I'm mispronouncing his name, because um, I don't know how to do it uh, Dutch style, then please forgive me. Renier de Ritter. He is the doubleweight champ, their middleweight, their light heavyweight over in one. He just had a win over Vitaly Big Dash with inverted triangle. Dude, that fucking guy is a beast. He's a beast. He is awesome. I, I would be shocked if he doesn't find his way to the UFC or, you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, maybe one pays him a bunch of money and he sticks around, but that dude is vicious, vicious. He is very, very good. Usman Nurmagomedov is, of course, very good as well, but he fights... Um, not careful to the point where he doesn't look for offense. I don't mean that. But he doesn't quite have a same wide open style. He is he very much waits till the fight can be put on terms where he's comfortable, which can be in a lot of different phases, and then he really kind of pours on the offense after that. It's a it's a lot of reservation 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 then go. De Ritter is just he's he's a lot of all action. Uh he's phenomenal as well. And also um Abdul Abdul Ragimov, he's, I'm mispronouncing his last name. He's the Aries FC, that's the French promotion. Let me look up his name here real quick. Because uh, he's been impressive as well. Uh, yes. Oop, hang on. Abdul Abdurragimov. He is the, uh, they call him the Lazy King. He is the Aries FC welterweight champion. And he's a fucking handful as well. 15 and 1. Uh, he has his last win over Carl Amasu, who they called uh, the Psycho. He was a Bellator vet, judo background guy. If you guys don't know, 
Uh, he's French, obviously. Um, the French are very, very, very good at judo. They're really good at judo. He beat Godofredo Pepe uh, with inverted triangle choke. Godofredo Pepe is a um, UFC vet. And let's see who else he's got on here that I would recognize. Sidney Wheeler he's got a win over. And then, oh, Viscardi Andrade, who I think competed for Bellator. No, UFC fighter. He fought in the UFC as well. He was on the Ultimate Fighter Brazil. He's got wins over all these guys. He's going to be in the UFC probably for too long as well. Speaks English, by the way. Uh, he's a hammer. So, dude, there's lots of great prospects out there. Lots of great. I will tell you, man, like it used to be a lot harder to identify up-and-coming prospects unless you could go to like local fights in your area. Like if you lived in Southern California and there was a lot of promotions there at the time, there still are, you could go and watch. And, you know, I'll be honest, I'm not sure how I feel about the industry kind of consolidating around UFC Fight Pass. Is it really a good idea that the UFC gives these organizations money? That sounds nice, right? But, of course, you know, and I don't think that they demand that their champions ultimately uh, sign with them. But it does create a natural pipeline between what they're doing and the UFC. You know, I wonder how much that sort of makes the job difficult for organizations like PFL and Bellator. Nevertheless, it is a thing that is happening. Oh, and by the way, Abdul Abdul Ragimov trains, trains out of MMA Factory. That's the same gym as Cyril Ghosn and you know a bunch of guys. Um, I do worry about that, but the the reality is, like, if you want to watch tape on up and coming fighters, I mean, a Fight Pass subscription is it's just money and it's just great. It's really great. It's a really really valuable thing to have. I don't know if it's all that good for the industry at wide. You could make a different argument. I don't know. But if you're trying to figure out who's up up and coming, not that difficult. Other than just the time required to watch. Luke, just out of curiosity, how do you think Kaikara France matches up with Figueredo? At one point in time, I thought Kai might get caught by submission from Figgy in a scramble. Or if he was hurt. But as of recent, he's really tightened up that. So I assume for the most part... That will take place on the feet. How would that look? Yeah, that's interesting. I will say, and I, um, this is something we'll talk about on Morning Combat tomorrow. The big, the big change to me that I can detect in Kai Carter France's game has been on tightening up the defensive wrestling to an extent and tightening up the defensive grappling, or at least at a bare minimum, the submission defense, especially from the back. Like the Bontarine fight is a good example. The Askarov fight's a good example. There's a few of them, but. Those two stand out since the loss to Brandon Royville. Um, still, I would present Figueredo as a little bit more of a challenge than both those guys. So, I don't. While I take the spirit of the question genuinely, I think you, you're on to something. Um, I don't know. I still think Figueredo is a little bit more, a little, little harder to handle in that regard. Um, and on the feet. Yeah, Kaikara France would be better there. I, I'd be interesting to see how he would deal with Figueredo's leg kicks, which are substantial. Figueredo, uh, one thing he did really well against Brandon Moreno in the third fight was accepting the blitz but using it to clinch or get the takedown. And then Moreno was able to scramble out of it because Moreno, or for the most part, was able to scramble out of it or defend the takedown because obviously Moreno is very good in that department. But for a guy like Kaikara France who does... You know, Kaikar France tends to start from pretty far away and then has these, like, overhand bombs that he tries to throw. Um, for a guy like Figueredo, if he could see it coming and get underneath it and absorb it, he could get the takedown, relative, relatively speaking, easily, and then the back from there. So, your question is, well, it's, 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 an, it's a good one. 
I take I take it seriously, but I still think Figueredo is a little bit different than the guys to this point um, in that respect. It's like he's got better grappling than Askarov, and also a heavier hitter, and also a better striker, and and like athletically more nimble. And Askarov was able to find the back, not like routinely, but enough to make it close. You know. Uh, Dana, uh, there's a couple other ones here. I'll come back to them in just a second. Dana White stated that Colby could go down to 155, did he? Or fight at 185. How do you see him doing in both divisions, provided that he could make 155 safely? Um, well, 185 I don't think would be a good idea, candidly. I think he'd be out-muscled there. 155 is interesting, assuming this is a true thing that Dana actually said. Um, assuming he could make it safely. I think he'd be a handful. I think he'd be a handful. But at this point, it's like 170 is kind of... Uh, Colby would be better at like 165, and then if Welterweight was 175 between those two. At 155, that's a tremendous cut, and I wonder how that would affect... I know he has a good gas tank, but I do wonder how that would affect it. And then more to that point, what it would do to his speed his punch resistance. Some of these other guys at 155, your Gamrots and, and whatnot, like they've got the same kind of gas tank. They're better suited for it. You could say he'd be stronger, maybe. I just tend to think there's no such thing as a free lunch and there would be a cost on the other end. Otherwise, he'd be going to 155 already. 170 is the sweet spot. He's you know he's not a big welterweight, but he'd be an enormous lightweight. Um, It would be a real question of how his strength and speed would translate and then the cardio that powers it all. It's an interesting question. Does he have the skills to do well down there? Yes, he's got the skills to do well. What I wonder is those skills are all underwritten by a certain athletic profile that I think would be diminished at 155. I'd be curious to see. Um, here's one that's got 25 questions, so or 25 uh, thumbs up. So I'll give these the uh, the answer. One, there's three of them. One, what made you choose to enter the military? Thought it'd be good for me. Thought it'd be good for my career to have it on the resume. Um, thought it'd be good to see what it could do for me. Didn't have any particular patriotic inclinations uh, in that way. Um, Thought it'd be tough, and I thought it'd be good for me, really, is the short answer. What made you choose to be a Marine over other military branches? I just thought it was... Uh, what were the biggest lessons you learned from being a Marine? Well, um, the Army recruiters were uh, slobs. <laughs> the military, uh, the Marine Corps recruiter that I had was fucking built like a bodybuilder, which was probably on purpose that they put him in that way. And by the way, that's not true for like all recruiters in all ways, but it was true in my experience. Like I remember when they had like a recruiting day um, and I saw the recruiters, the the Air Force ones were normal. The Navy ones were normal. The, the Army guys did not look fit at all. And then, you know, and actually I walked into a recruiting office myself. That's how I did it. I actually didn't sign up that day. I actually went into uh, the recruiter's office. They must have loved that. It makes their job easy. Um, and they were fucking, they looked like they were on steroids and they might've been. So, you know, 17 years old and not knowing jack shit about the world that looked persuasive. Um, do you have, do you have any friends in the military who've taken lives? Yeah, sure. Whole bunch. 
how has that affected him? Fucked him up real good. Not permanently, but um, that I'm aware of. But for a long time, messed him up real good. Yeah. I had guy, um, my, uh, one of my very best friends in college ended up going to the Marines. I, I, you know, I, I don't know if it's because of me, but I, there was two guys who were like two of my best friends. They were younger than me. They ended up, and they were both in my fraternity. They both ended up joining the Marine Corps after I graduated. I kind of always wonder what that may have been about. Both of them uh, went to Iraq. Uh, one went to Iraq and Afghanistan. And then the one that went to Iraq, um, he did house to house shit. You know, um, he came back a disaster, a disaster. I don't know if I saw him sober for a full year, you know, I mean, it was real bad. Um, but now he's on his feet. He got married and, uh, actually has a really good job. He's doing quite well for himself, but you know, all those guys, most of them kind of worked it out over the last years that they came back from deployment. But, um, yeah, they, they got fucked up. They got real fucked up from it. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, certainly I'm no expert on this. Any good tips for lifting at home on a budget? Yeah. Uh, Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace, um, Black Friday deals. If you're, it's still going to be expensive to do like a full build. So if you're really looking to save money and you're looking to like do, um, meaningful work, it's something I'm actually trying now and like really enjoying kettlebells, man. Kettlebells, they're, each one is not all that cheap, but you can buy a used set of kettlebells from um, all kinds of different places. Um, you know, you, you have to kettle, learning how to use a kettlebell is a skill, and I'm trying to learn everything I can with it now. I, I, I'm, I can do most things single-handed, double-handed, still a little bit of a challenge. Obviously, technique breakdown gets more involved as the kilos go up. But, you know, if you had a pair of kettlebells, um, man, you can do a lot. Jesus, you can do a lot with that. There's this dude, I forget, I think his name is like Rugged Fitness Lifestyle or Rugged Lifestyle Fitness or whatever his name is on uh it's this uh black dude who I think he's a firefighter in Texas. I can only you can only tell like from whatever he shows on Instagram. All this dude uses is kettlebells and he's got a giant uh sandbag. He's got like a hundred pound sandbag, hundred fifty pound sandbag, two hundred pound sandbag. And you can buy nice ones from Rogue, but you can make your own. Honestly, you don't need anyone to do that. And he just uses that. He doesn't use shit else. Doesn't have a gym membership, nothing. And that dude is strong as an ox. Looks like, looks like he's in good shape. You know, I don't... It, it, there's some cost is involved, obviously, but you'd be surprised, man. F- Craigslist, Facebook Marketplace, Black Friday deals, all kinds of ways to get them. Yard sales, whatever. You can make your own stuff if it's like a sandbag or and, th- and things like that. There's all kinds of ways. Where there's a will, there's a way, man. It's not... Yeah, if you want to have a big build out where you're having rogue bars and you've got, you know, a thousand pounds in calibrated plates and you've got a nice bench, yeah, it's you're gonna spend thousands of dollars. I mean, there's just no denying it. But if you want to get strong, if you want to get fit, um, pick up heavy shit and carry it, get a couple of kettlebells that are hard but you know, workable for you, and get to work. Luke, how do you acquire the ability to analyze fights in real time? Despite watching countless hours of footage, I struggle to pick up on fine details like foot position, feints, and traps. Well, first thing I'd say is uh, that's going to be true for, you know, even the keenest eye doesn't pick up stuff the first time around. 
right? Even the sharpest minds I've talked to, they usually require a couple of rotations through before they can get it. Now, they get it faster, and sometimes they don't need those. But in general, like the idea that even though you're like a brilliant combat sports analyst out there, whoever it may be, your Dan Hardy's, your Dean Thomas's, whatever, um, even they will require, you know, D- Dan slows it down for a reason, right? He doesn't just watch it once and all of a sudden he's got it. Even a guy that sharp, that experienced has to take time to do it. So the, don't feel bad that it's taking you multiple rotations. The two things I would say on top of that, though, is, and this is what, I'll go back to this, like, dude, MMA commentary, it's not that great. Not for me, you know, uh, and I, I that always sounds like some kind of dig. I don't mean it to be a dig at all. I think MMA commentary is borderline fucking impossible because so much is happening. It's actually pretty hard to know what the hell is happening in real time. You can pick up on broad strokes or there might be a couple things you're looking for that you had seen on tape and then they reveal themselves after the fact like in a previous fight. But in general like you know, it's think about it. Like one of the biggest things and I'm I'm getting all my stuff out of my office next week, by the way. Bringing it all back home. Yay, that worked out well. Tuki is out here. I mean, can can we not? <laughs> um, the reality is, um, where was I with this? Talking about it. Oh yeah, two 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 other things. Um, the first would be beyond, like you know, just the reality that it's hard for uh, even experienced eyes to do something like that. Um. I would say one, having some training experience is valuable. You know, if you've trained at all in any capacity, some of that is going to bleed over. You're going to know tendencies. You're going to know what might happen next in a guard pass. And when it does or doesn't happen, you can kind of identify why. So like having a base of training, and by the way, like it's hardly like mine is exemplary, but you know, it gives you some foundation to understand the mechanism of what's happening here and what might be next in a series of events that makes it easier to watch in real time. Um, and the other part is, I was talking about MMA commentary. I'll come back to that. The other part is, is um, watching tape is a skill. Watching tape is a skill related to either training or fight experience, but it is also somewhat distinct. It should not be possible for someone with my background to watch tape in the way that I do but for the fact that I can aid my training experience with tape watching. And I actually can get better at watching tape. You begin to learn to like look for certain things. You begin to understand things on tape in a way where I couldn't pull it off in real life, but I can see it, I can understand it, and I can talk about it. Um, they, are not, they are not the same skill. People think that like if you know everything about fighting because you were, you know, you fought 50 times, yes, of course, they're gonna be better at watching fighting tape than you know the vast majority of people but even then if they watched more tape they would actually get better at it themselves they are distinct to an extent to an extent they are distinct skills so one you need to work on like you, you should examine how is it exactly you are watching tape you should kind of think about it like what is your method by which you watch it how could it be improved what are some deficiencies of it you should continue to work on that but the part about MMA commentary and again it always sounds like a dig it's like I don't really mean it this way, but Jesus, dude, it's hard to do watching MMA fights in real time where you're supposed to be entertaining and you have to work with whoever you're, you, know, you have to bounce off the other person. There has to be a flow and a rhythm. And at the same time, you have to pick up on these very subtle, often sometimes very difficult nuances. I go back to it, you know, no one in that commentary booth 
for the Volcano. And I didn't, I, I, I noticed one half of this, but I didn't really pay attention in either. I didn't really occur to me. I was watching so many of the things I had missed it that Volkanovsky was circling totally to his left, you know, the whole time. Like, the reason why I'm able to do what I do and when I bring everything back starting next week is that um, so much goes missed. Like, if they were able, again, it's, it's, now, I couldn't do a better job. I don't know who the fuck could do a better job, to be honest with you. Like, <laughs> it's that difficult. It's insanely difficult. It's insanely difficult. But the point I'm trying to make is it actually opens up a door for people like me, which is, not that I can take their jobs, far from it. However, because so much shit goes missed during the broadcast, it gives me an opportunity to then cover all that stuff after the fact with, you know, more tools and the ability to slow things down and... uh um, that kind of a thing. So the answer to your question is in part, there might be a training component you should consider depending on your situation. And again, everyone's going to be different. You should examine your methodology for watching tape, see how it could be improved. And then just kind of understand it's going to take several rotations to pick up on stuff. It, that's just kind of the way that it goes. And that's true for even the very best minds. They don't get it in real time. They get some of the stuff they can do better than you or me in real time for sure. But they leave a, I'll, I'll leave it this way. They put a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor that actually turns out to be quite valuable. And so I can come up after the fact, pick up the pieces, edit it together, so to speak, and make effective use out of it. Um, that's how insanely difficult it is to call MMA fights. It, it, it's, it's, you have to, you, you know, it's funny, man. You know, it was kind of crazy and y'all are going to say this because, well, some people will say this because they have nothing but bad motivations to ascribe to it. You know, who killed it the other day? Like I was like one of the better commentary duos I'd ever heard was Laura Senko and Paul Felder. Dude, they were bouncing brilliance off of each other. They were picking up all kinds of stuff and they were like, one of the things that does kind of kill me is if you're the one thing I will be critical about MMA commentary, like because that sounds like it was being critical. No, that's that's me trying to get you to be understanding of it. But the one thing I will be critical about is when someone makes a declarative statement like, "Oh, they're really looking great tonight." You need to tell me why. You know, their wrestling looks great tonight. You need to tell me why specifically. You know, uh, and one of the things that Sanko and Felder were able to do was like here, like in real time. If someone did X, it could result in this, and here's the progression of what that might look like. This is why this is not working. This is why this is not looking great. This is why this is looking great. Giving you, not just giving you these like declarative statements of insight, but then the actual insight that would go into the declarative statement. A lot of that is missing. A lot of that is missing. Too much of it is, is the painting of narratives rather than the explanation of um, tactics or strategy or technique. I think there could be that could be tightened up a little bit across the board, and Paul Felder and I thought Lorisenko together because they were they were clearly vibing in that way. They did a really great job of it on the Contender series. So, um, but you know, there's other good commentators out there. Paul Felder's good no matter who he's teamed up with. I think Dan Hardy's great. Um, Cormier I think is good on wrestling. For example, sometimes he gets you know he gets the sillies. but he is obviously I really value his his wrestling insight and Cruz. I mean I could go down the list, but. You get the idea. Good question. What do you think the pay-per-view buy rate will be for UFC 277? As a longtime UFC fan, I'm struggling with the reality of having to pay for this event. 
Do you think the main card lineup justifies a requested price? Well, first of all, it's the second pay-per-view in a month, right? Um, and the last one was, at least on paper, it kind of turned out to be a little ho-hum, but at least on paper was stacked, right? Um, whether it's up to you to pay for, I can't make that decision. Like, if you think it's good, buy it. If you don't, don't. Like, don't, don't feel pressured either way. But in terms of what the buy rate will be, this one's going to be low. I don't think I've seen this little amount of care about a UFC pay-per-view in some time. Um, which, by the way, in both directions, the support for via pay-per-view buy or the lack of pay-per-view buy by itself doesn't necessarily correlate to either card quality or what the fights themselves could turn out to be. These are... These are, these are like, oh, you never know if the fights are good until after the fact. Yeah, that's kind of true, but pointless. The point is, like, you want to put something as a promoter on paper, no matter who you are, Bellator, PFL, whatever, you want to put something on paper that entices the audience to watch to begin with. And I've told you that, like, that will only work so much. And, you know, the reward for being a hardcore fan is that you get, you get to watch the good stuff that the casuals miss, right? But the reality is you need to be able to entice them to watch. So being like, oh, the good ones are all the ones that, you know, people skip. First of all, that's not even true. And and mostly you're just admitting that people skipped your fucking product. Like that's not the own you think it is, you know. Yeah, 277, It's that main event is quality. The co-main event is quality. I'm really interested to see what happens with Anthony Smith and Magomedov. You have the other flyweight fight and then you got Derek Lewis back in action against Sergey Pavlovich. Like, these are not bad fights by any stretch of the imagination. Is it worth your money? Only you can make that calculation. But I suspect that a fair amount of people will conclude that it's not in their interest. There are not many, or hard, there's no pay-per-view draw in there, really. Amanda Nunes is something of a, obviously, a very celebrated figure and can pull a little bit, obviously, but she's coming off the loss, hence the rematch. Yeah, it's going to do poorly. I'm going to guess somewhere north of 100 or maybe around 200K buys. Uh, probably probably around 200k or so, give or take. It will not do well. It will not do well. Again, everyone was killing Izzy because he couldn't clear four. Um, there's a lot of headliners <laughs> that can't clear four. He would hardly be alone, and in fact, there are many behind him who are much worse. Hey, LT, hope you're doing well. With the rising prices of UFC pay-per-view, do you think that there will be more legit buys or more illegal streamers? Assuming nothing is happening to said streamers other than Dana White's rant about them. I will tell you that the rise in price... So, okay, here's what's kind of funny. So, there, so I don't know if you guys have followed the story at all. Streaming, I'm not going to say is in trouble, but it's hit something of an inflection point. And it's not just ESPN. It's all of the streamers. What they basically was was happening for a long period of time was there was this massive investment in streaming as there was this decline in the watch of linear television. If you don't know what linear television is, it's just sort of television as we commonly understand it. Getting a cable box from whoever, DirecTV or Comcast, and you're watching the news channels. If you're American, you know ABC News, or ESPN, whatever the fuck, TNT. That's commonly understood to be linear television. YouTube TV does that via the internet, but that's essentially linear television. Streaming would be, for example, Netflix or, um, you know, uh, Disney Plus or something like that, right? And then, then they kind of bleed into each other with things like HBO Max. But the point is this. There was this heavy in investment in the television kind of streaming space to the point where 
even linear television was paying streamers to get access to some of their shows to put on linear television and vice versa. Or, or you know, Netflix, for example, paying all kinds of money to get access to whatever from the linear television networks. And it, it led to this boom in television writing and television demand for television content because there was this underlying presumption that streaming was going to sort of democratize watching TV, that watching TV was not just watching linear TV, Watching TV could mean watching on your phone. It could mean watching on your computer. It could mean watching on anything where they have a screen and access to the internet. Like if you just took dust particles and threw them into the air and they landed on all these different things, all of them become TV in this sort of new way of understanding it. But what they basically did, and it's sort of a complicated argument to get around to, but the long story short is that they overestimated the amount of people who would ultimately pay for these services and how many subscribers were ultimately there. And they thought that they could keep growing and growing and growing and growing the subscriber base and they hit a brick fucking wall. You've seen these Netflix layoffs and everything else. And you've seen now Netflix has announced they're going to come out with an ad-supported free tier to what they're doing. So there might be like the, I'm going to make something up. I don't know what their tiers are. My wife pays for Netflix. But like there's, let's say there's a $5 tier and what that gets you. And then a $10 tier and then a $15 tier. Now there's going to be pretty soon a free tier, which is ad-supported. Which is kind of funny because one of the benefits of streaming ostensibly was, you know, Everything's at the touch of a fingertips. You can go right to what you want. You're paying for a subscription. You don't have to worry about anything else. Now, streaming is coming back full circle into what? Linear television, where you watch shows, and then there's ads in between, and then you're watching shows, and then there's ads in between, and it's ad-supported, but it's free. So, that's why these prices with ESPN Plus are going up. Now, they're claiming it's the, the loss of certain... Um, you know, rights to certain kinds of sports or leagues or whatever, but it's really affecting all streamers everywhere. And you might see more, they're raising prices on one end. And what I think you also might begin to see is free tiers on the other end, because if it's just raising prices to make a long story short here again, um, there's going to be piracy out the ass. Like that's not going to work or they'll just, people just won't watch, you know, there has to be something really quite valuable or accessible about it. What the fuck is the point of streaming TV if it's both expensive and inaccessible? Um, you know, that doesn't seem to work. So, the price of the pay-per-view to me is less the issue. That's always been a big debate. When I first started watching, they were all, you know, 54 bucks. I think maybe even less, maybe 45 bucks. Yeah, they were 45 and 35 for um, HD and SD. You know, something like that. And now they're up in the 70s. That's kind of always been, um, you know, there's been consistent complaints about pay-per-view prices, but that's really never held them back. To me, the bigger issue is what streaming models are going to do to make Rev as ad-supported tiers potentially grow in use and popularity and as the subscriber base is no longer as scalable in, in growth as they once thought. And again, it ain't just ESPN Plus or Netflix. It's a huge problem. Luke, have you ever considered THC vape pens as opposed to nicotine ones? <laughs> like, uh, not new to this, fellas. You know? They have many different flavors. <laughs> I'm, I'm well aware. Plug and play is one of the ones I use the most. Appreciate the content. Yeah, here. Um, yeah, they're great. I use them all the time. How would Prime Vanderlei do in today's MMA? Poorly. Poorly. Um, he had 
pretty poor striking technique. He threw a lot of wild bombs. Um, you know, and I don't think his game necessarily like relied on clinching or something like that, uh, or stomping and excuse me, stomping and soccer kicks. But he does have, you know, well, his his game to an extent did rely on clinching. But you know, somebody with a good jab and good footwork is going to give that guy hell. Also, he's a little bit undersized, I think, for modern two hundred five. Although maybe at one eighty five, they'd be a bit of a different story. Um. Not great is the answer. I mean, he was so tough and so vicious and so mean. He would get wins and potentially some big ones. But, and you know, there are, there are yes, he would he would get some decent wins along the way. But, like, would he be champion in the way that he was? And, like, this feared menace of the division. I have a guy like Ankalaev would tear him to pieces. So would um, Izzy. Like, it'd be, it'd be a tough night for him. Uh, Luke, just want to say good work, mate, on your health and fitness. You can see the difference in your energy from last year to this year. Keep it up, brother. Yeah, I'm trying. It's killing me, but I'm trying. I am trying. Man, I have something wrong with my left knee. You guys are going to be like, oh, Luke's health is falling apart. This has been ongoing for years. I just let it go and didn't. I just, I just didn't do shit about it, you know. So this is nothing new. This has been going on since even before my daughter was born. But now it's gotten worse. Where when I bend my left knee, it feels like something right in the center is about to tear. And uh, and it feels unstable as well. Both of my knees like crunch and pop. But my, I'm told that the rule with crunching and popping is um, if it doesn't really hurt, then just ignore it. That's been the case with my shoulder, and that's largely been true. I don't really have to worry about it. And again, there's plenty of that on my knees. I don't really care. But this one, it's not the crunching and the popping. It, it, it really feels like there's something lining up right down the middle, and then it's about to tear when I get... And, then the de- and I, you know, I go ATG on the squats. So when I get real, if I go below parallel, it hurts like real bad. And so I'm trying to work on fixing that. Um, and I, so a lot of my gym time now is spent like, what do you want to call it? Pre or rehabbing or whatever the hell it is. So, I, you know, I'm not quite getting the gains that I want, but I'm hoping to like between the ankle and the knee. It's a, it's welcome to getting old, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, you know, you could be like, oh, these are Luke's issues. Yeah, they are. Yours ain't far behind, okay? Because when I was 35, which was yeah seven years ago, I did not necessarily have this. Especially like 32, 33, I didn't feel anything wrong, you know? The only thing I had wrong was this, but that was that was an injury from actual weightlifting. Um, that wasn't just like, hey, why does my ankle hurt today, you know? Luke, do you think Shavkat... Rachmanov's head movement will be costly against elite strikers. Do you think his movement and IQ will make up for it? He has high fight IQ. Um, it will depend because he has the ability to fight the fight in a lot of different phases. So the question is like, if it was a prolonged striking battle, what would that look like? Hard to say. I haven't given it much thought. I would give you a bad answer. Um, let's see. Recently, I've heard a lot of commentators in the MMA space refer to the bantamweight division as the best in the UFC when I strongly believe lightweight is still significantly stronger. I know it can be difficult to compare, but could you imagine someone, for example, Rob Font with his limited skill set? Not that limited. Even sniffing the top 10 as a lightweight if he had more size. Lightweights who are currently unranked include Riddell, Dober, Pimblett, Fajeda, 
Kudate, Ladzi, Gillespie, and Green. Right. Let's pull this up for just a second, though. Also, it's sort of the dynamic action of the upper tier that is somewhat defining that. But, dude, Sean O'Malley is 13. Umar Nurmagomedov is 14. Jack Shore is 15. Frankie Edgar is 12. Granted, he's long in the tooth, but he's still getting some decent wins out there somewhat. 11 is Ricky Simone and 10 is Song Yadong. That's 10 to 15, folks. I mean, that is a fucking stacked division. Rob Font uh, has his known limits. That's true. That's a talented fighter. It's a very talented fighter. I, I, when you say, what, do you, what did you write? What is limited skill set? What do you? It's limited. I mean, every, no fighter is perfect. Everyone's got limits. Okay, he's got his. Um, they're real. But he's real good. Like, his strengths are excellent. And his, yes, he's got some limits. Um, I, 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 not, I would like, I would like to hear more about what you think is limited about Rob Font. Again, every fighter has them. I'm not suggesting that they don't exist. I would like to know more about what you think and, that, and how that is defining of his place as you know a division that's not as good. I, I tend to think very highly of Rob Font. I mean, yeah, he's had his issues, but um, he's quite talented. Uh, good question. How do you feel about the proliferation of gambling within MMA? With within sports betting being more widely available in the U.S., it feels like much more of the coverage of the sport revolves around betting, fight odds, picks, etc. It also seems like it's affected how people watch the sport with bigger bash, backlash against close decisions with more cries of robbery. Would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, that's absolutely true. It's something that's kind of interesting. I mean, here's the reality. And like we at MK took some money for a time from DraftKings, and I wouldn't mind taking money from another gambling uh, outfit going forward. I don't I don't have any moral objections to gambling and more to the point about it being legalized in the way that it has been. I don't think the government has a compelling interest in keeping it illegal. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have compelling interest in regulating it, right? About certain ages and 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 um, and whatnot about how gambling should and can be conducted. You're right about how that has changed how podcasts sound and everything else. Now, it's in fairness, in the combat sports space, it's really not that much of a change. It is a little bit for sure. There has been more of it. But I got to tell you, like even in the early days, because fighting was somewhat of an illicit thing and heavily tied to Las Vegas specifically, there's like as long as I've been covering MMA, there's been, there's been a, um, an inherent gambling component to it almost from the word go I mean they didn't put odds I don't think for a little while but you know I'm trying to think of like can I remember a UFC card at any point after 2003 or 4 where I couldn't find odds on them I don't recall that I don't recall that or they were in like you know back when Atlantic City was something of a gambling casino haven on the east coast they were doing odds there as well. Like it's in, in combat sports, it's not nearly as much of a change. It's a much bigger change in your stick and ball sports. And um, you know, if you hear any gambling ads, like if you listen to sports radio, they'll do you know this is the FanDuel two for one, or you know, and then they they read the terms out, and it's like you know, please gamble responsibly. Gambling gambling problem? Call one eight hundred. You know, I fucked my life up or whatever it is. Um, I will tell you that like one thing I just don't think people th consider enough is like one they're just dumping money into sports podcasts and sports 
radio shows. Like, you know, I've seen some of the some of the deals we've been offered that we didn't ultimately take, not for monetary reasons, but for you know, different ones. They're big deals. Like they're the like these companies out there are putting in huge amounts of money. That's very hard for like a podcast or a podcaster or a writer or whatever to turn down. And that's going to be equally true for sports radio, that kind of thing. Like it just is the, the amount of money that they have pumped into it is going to very much define the product. So I understand it for those reasons. Like it's, you know, I will tell you that one of the big improvements, and even then it's they've still not come as far as I had hoped. The UFC has actually come a pretty long way in terms of um, – getting better sponsors but like here's something you should think about they still don't have a marquee car sponsor right that's one big thing that has kind of always eluded them they've had like you know off and on the harley thing and i think they had dodge for a while or something but they've never really had a marquee um car sponsorship in that kind of a way because it's just hard to get that product like I make this point all the time. You should go if you don't watch tennis, go watch like Wimbledon and look at their sponsors. Mercedes, American Express, Rolex. I mean, you can't fucking believe who their sponsors are. Meanwhile, you watch a UFC contest and dude, you know, if the UFC is pulling this, you can only imagine what it must be like for like regional promotions, you know, P3 and, you know, whatever the fuck. So, here comes I don't know who their sponsor is, FanDuel or DraftKings, whoever it is. Here they come and I bet they're putting in shit tons of money dude that's hard money to get even for a brand as established and big and as successful as the ultimate fighting championship so i think that's part of it um, on the first level and then it bleeds over into, into podcasting and radio but here's the one thing i would just always caution people to think about it's like do i think the government has a compelling interest in preventing sports gambling i do not they might have a compelling interest in regulating components of it but not outright banning it i just don't think that's the business that the government should be in and i think most of you would probably agree in general with that statement however there is i'm going to say it again there is no such thing as a free lunch i am not in any way of the mind that the government has a compelling interest in banning alcohol sales i think that'd be a real bad idea for the government to be involved in that however by legalizing it you are making a choice societally about how this is going to go. You are making a choice that there are going to be significantly more drunk driving deaths, significantly more health complications by virtue of uh, uh, ODs from using alcohol or, you know, alcohol poisoning, um, you know, getting into the hands of young people, uh, abuse from people in their 20s, how it's going to contribute to domestic violence problems. Like, dude, it's going to do those things. Now, you want to do whatever you can to limit that. You can make the however you, who you want to sell it to, what kind of cultural practices are enforced. And there's a lot of different ways. And, and also in America, where everyone has to drive everywhere, no wonder we have so many problems with vehicular death and drunk driving because we have created a society where having a car is basically essential to getting anywhere in most places. That's not true, obviously, for places like Manhattan or you know maybe your city is, is in a similar situation. But a car is... In, in the United States is an extremely important component of daily life. And so by legalizing alcohol in the way that we do, we are just, we are, we are saying that this will be an inevitable consequence, but that's still better than the government trying to ban that for either principled or other kinds of pragmatic reasons. Same thing with marijuana. Folks, 
I'm all in, trust me when I tell you, I am all in favor of the legalization of marijuana, in part because of the machine that was put behind it to put people in jail and the war on drugs and, and all the kinds of stuff. Plus, there's medicinal benefits, and, and, and there's a lot of reasons why, again, the government does not have a compelling interest in outright regulating it. But, but, by legalizing it, there are going to be health and social trade-offs as a consequence. That is going to be inevitable. They might not be as stark as the ones around alcohol, but they will exist. It's not possible to just let a drug grow freely into society and just assume this will only result in a net positive. That doesn't mean it should be illegal, but that doesn't mean it doesn't come without costs. It does. It's the same thing with sports gambling. I don't think the government has a compelling interest in preventing it, but the proliferation of it and the focus on it and the way that we do it now across all of sports is almost certainly going to make it where um, people are going to spend money they don't have. They're going to develop addictions. They're going to develop all kinds of poor antisocial behaviors. As a con- I mean, there's going to be all kinds of problems as a consequence of allowing sports gambling to be legalized. That's why you want to do it in as regulated and um, to the extent possible, you know, rational kind of way some of this is just not preventable as a consequence but so i'm not i'm not here to argue that like oh we should get rid of sports gambling it's here to stay and i'm i think it's good that it's here to stay in general in general but do i think that there's going to be a lot of cases of people who lose their ass by virtue of how much more accessible this is than it ever once was there's not a doubt in my mind and again none of this stuff is written into stone right if if, if it actually did turn out that the proliferation of sports gambling produced harms well beyond expectation of what we had imagined, then there actually might be a case for limiting it in certain ways where it would still be legal in Vegas or in certain cities or in certain ways, but not as much as it is now. Like, none of these things are... Um, when I say the government doesn't have a compelling interest in regulating it, it's only based on expectations about what kinds of harms it actually offers and then the principle involved about, you know, personal and, and social freedoms. Um, but yeah, like I am very cognizant that there's going to be a lot of disruption to people's lives as a consequence. Look, I listen to you and Kyle Kalinsky from Secular Talk every week. He once referred to Kyle as one of your heroes. Yeah, I like Kyle a lot. What are the chances we get you two together for a political MMA chat? I saw him walking down the street a few months ago. I actually tweeted him about it. He tweeted back. He, I think he follows me or he used to. I don't know if he does anymore. I'd love to talk to Kyle. I don't know why the fuck he would want to talk to me. I don't think he watches MMA. And so, you know, I could talk to him about politics or something. But I don't I don't think he watches the sport. So, you know, my door's always open. But I'm not, I don't, you know, I don't expect him to uh, care. It's okay. In fact, I usually get sad when people like that follow me. <laughs> it's like, on the one, I used to be like real pumped about it, you know? I'd be like, oh, it's cool, this person's following me. And then you realize that they have to deal with all your stupid tweets about a sport they probably don't give a shit about, even a little. And then, you know, what does that do for your ability to connect with them long term? Maybe you don't feel it in that way, but there's definitely been times where I wondered how much, and, I, I, and if I retweet something that they do that's, or say that's not necessarily MMA related, I'll get all the people who are MMA focused, you know, in my mentions, and they'll kind of respond to them. And a lot of times it's not like, 
it's not as enlightened a response as I would have hoped. And then you can see them react to the people I had, I retweeted them into. And, it, you know, it's just like, oh, fuck. Like, I did not want this to happen, you know. So, um, long story short, I, I like the dude a lot. I don't know if there's really a case for us to get together, but wouldn't say no. Uh, all right. If Pena, Moreno, and Grasso in August win their next fight, should the UFC do a pay-per-view in Mexico with Pena Aldana as one fight, okay. Shevchenko Grasso, okay. And Moreno, and then he's going to say, is my guest is Pantoja, who will fight Alex um, Perez on Saturday. And then Yair versus Emmett for the interim title. That would be fucking awesome. That would be awesome. <laughs> I'd love that, man. I lo I'd love to see that. I, I love seeing the growth of MMA in Mexico. Love it. For as important as they are in boxing... If we could get a fraction of that, you know how much better MMA fighters would be out of there? I mean, they're already getting really good, but you know what I mean? Like, the level of talent that Mexico has produced over the decades in boxing is extraordinary. Um, I would love to see something similar on the MMA side. We, we would be rich as shit for it. Look, you seem to really enjoy conversations with coaches rather than fighters. Not exclusively, but generally. Would you consider starting up an interview series with different coaches to break down ideas and concepts in modern MMA? I would love to, time depending, but um, the answer is yes. The answer is I'd love to do it, but here's what I want to do. And you can do it with a fighter as well. What I want to do is be able to sit down with the coach in person and then watch film with them. That's what I want to do. I want to do watching film with a coach sitting there together, going through it. And not like a film be or a fight beginning to end. Like, hey, I've selected these pieces. What do you think of this, that, and the other? And <coughs> use that to have a conversation about um, broader trends or important developments. That's, that's, sort of my, that's sort of my dream. Wouldn't have to be exclusively coaches. You could do it in a lot of different ways because there's not that many coaches you could do that with. You would find out pretty quickly that, oh, you would run out of, like, if you did one of those a week, you would run out of new coaches that could meaningfully, like, talk about things pretty quickly. But, um, you know, every once in a while, yeah, I'd like to do that. I mean, I went over this a little bit on MK. What did you think about Patty Pimblett's performance and then post-fight speech on mental health? I'll start with the second part first. Namely, I thought that was just tremendous. I thought it was brave of him to talk about that. Could not have been easy. He made it look easy. It probably wasn't. It was daring. It was um, thoughtful. Sorry, I got phlegm in the back of my throat out of nowhere. Uh, it was it was great. I have nothing but praise for that uh, admission. And, and I think I made this point either on this chat or on MK. Like, if it only helps just one person, mission accomplished. Probably will help more. And, of course, the stigma around men discussing feelings and whatnot with others, either their in-group or anyone else, trying to fix that and trying to get rid of that. I think that's great. I mean, who, could, who the hell could be against something like that? But then to do it on that platform, to have the presence of mind, to be so thoughtful and conscientious with it, is um, he just did a real big service to a lot of people. So I'm very thoughtful about or uh, I'm happy about that. In terms of the performance, I want to be very clear with this. I thought it was pretty good. That was pretty good. I thought his attack from the back to get the choke finally when he had it, when you know, uh, 
Levitt was in on his hips on the fence and he uses it to snake over this like kind of like rear naked choke under the arm from the back and then use that to roll him through to capture the arm and then go for the throat. I mean, that was really, really nice stuff. On the other hand, he got taken down a little bit too easily for my liking. And I just didn't see it. I was a little flat-footed on the feet. So for me, uh, what would I grade the performance? I'd grade it B+, plus, something like that, B+. Plus. Um, the finish itself was really good. Some of the other stuff was not. Maybe A-, minus. go somewhere in there. I just don't think he's got a lot of stuff to work on. Like, the stuff he's good at, he's good at. He's real good at. There's just a lot of stuff that seems to me there's a few more turns of the screw to be where it needs to. And folks are like, oh, you know, who could he fight next? I, I remind everyone, dude, Armin Saryukian is... Okay, here's the top... Here's 10 to 15 at lightweight. This is 10 to 15. Armin Saryukian, Tony Ferguson, Connor, now, you know, whatever. And then there's Dan, who's obviously a little bit you know, long in the tooth at this point. But listen to the other names. Jalen Turner and then Demir Ismogulov. By the way, nine is Mateusz Gamrot. He ain't beaten Mateusz Gamrot. And he ain't beaten Saryukian. Uh, and he ain't beaten Ismogulov. And on the feet, Turner would tear him up. Now, on the ground, that'd be a very different story, obviously. So that would be potentially an interesting one. And this is what I mean about his development. Dude, everyone develops at their own pace and their own speed. Um, that was a good win over a tricky grappler in Jordan Levitt, who I, I do think he is that. He's a tricky grappler. That was a nice win. And while he did get taken down and controlled in certain situations more than I would have liked, it ultimately didn't amount to any kind of winning effort for Jordan. You can even argue that Patty won the first round. So these are all good things. It's fine. It was a fine. It was a fine. To, it was a fine slash good performance, um, and then a great finish. Overall, maybe good to yeah. Overall, I'd say good is how I would rate that. But you know, just I want to be very clear. You match him up with Armin Saryukian tomorrow. That's going to be a real bad beating he's going to take. Luke, I noticed Nate Diaz is plus 750. Jesus. Versus Chimaev. Roughly the same as Pena versus Amanda for their first fight. When you compare and contrast these two fights, do you feel this is an accurate assessment of Diaz? I'm not sure what you mean because Pena ended up winning. Do I think that Nate will end up winning despite being plus 750? I do not. Um, like, okay, so what are Diaz's methods to victory here? One would be to get Chemayev to fight in an undisciplined way on the feet, and then you could strike with him potentially over the top, counteract him like that 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 shot over the top he always throws off someone's jab or cross. Um, that the one that that rocked Leon, right? That's one hope. I think the other one would be if he gets taken down and can work from guard and he can do something there. Um, those are real. Those are possible. God damn it. God damn. <clears throat> but they're not likely. They're, they're threats that Shemaev and his coach has to take seriously. But remember, it's like those are just individual weapons. Now, the guard is more of a sort of a, a place than a weapon, but it's also a weapon too. You have to be able to get the fight to go there. And that to me is where Diaz is going to be lacking both physically against a guy like Shemaev and then in terms of like clinching and wrestling – He's just not going to be able to define the, the fight on those terms. Chermayev is. And so, you know, it does depend to what extent what kind of fight Chermayev wants to fight. 
after his undisciplined showing against Gilbert where he still won, I wonder if his coach had a little bit of a conversation with him. Um, if he's careful or even like, you know, moderately risk friendly, he, he should win this one no problem. It's to me a question of like how undisciplined he ultimately ends up being. Let me answer one more of these. Two more of these very quickly. Are you sticking with Thursdays for shows or are you eventually intending to switch to Tuesdays? Here's the thing. I do want to switch to Tuesdays. But like there are weeks where, you know, again, I'm not outside hanging shingles on a roof. I'm not here to present my workload as something I'm, I'm asking pity for. I'm not. I'm in a very privileged position. I fully recognize it. But it is important, no matter what your profession, if you can at all do it, and I realize that some people live in a world where they have to work all the time, and, you know, it can't be easy. You got to take breaks when you can for your mental health. That Tuesday ends up being like a pretty nice break from the, you know, Fridays getting ready for the fights, Saturdays post fight, Sunday we're getting ready for Monday's show. And it got, there's, there's a lot of work that goes into it. Plus, if I'm going to start doing takedown or technique breakdowns again, Sunday becomes a big day for work. Monday becomes a big day for work. Tuesday, you need a fucking day off, you know, if at all possible. So, again, while I recognize there are people out there that haven't had vacations in years and they work all the time, I get it, you know. I, I, I don't have it harder than anyone. I, I don't mean to suggest as much. But it does work a little bit easier for me on, on Thursdays than that way. Uh, or Tuesdays to have Tuesday off. So, I don't know is the answer. Maybe not. Um, are you up on British comedy? Have you ever seen Black Adder starring Rowan Atkinson, who's Mr. Bean? Do you have any favorite British comedies? And if so, what are they? I have not seen Black Adder. I did see... I, I, I've actually never seen... Well, that's not true. I've seen one episode of The American Office. I've only ever seen The British Office, um, which was only two seasons, however long ago. And I just thought that was one of the most brilliant things I'd ever seen. Uh, by the way, you know what's a big difference between American and British television? Like, actually, a fair amount. Uh, American advertising is stupid. British advertising commercials are much better. <laughs> They're like much more thoughtful and like clever and well written. And if you're an American, that sounds that sounds hard to understand. You're like, yeah, you're selling insurance. How clever does it need to be? Or you're selling the Choco Taco. Like what? How you know? What are you doing? Fucking you're trying to win a Fields Medal at the chalkboard while you're doing this? Like it, it, it's it's hard to explain if you haven't actually seen it. But the commercials overseas, they're just they're a lot they're a lot more clever than they are here. Uh, I know it's almost nothing to go on, but did Tom Aspinall look reckless and full of adrenaline for the small time him and Blades were actually fighting? Yes, he did. It looked super uncharacteristic of him, and it looked like he would either get a knockout or get knocked out very quickly. Yes. Here's the thing. He may have dialed it back right away. He may have dialed it back after about a, a minute. Maybe he wanted to see exactly what Curtis would do if he did that, and he knew it was a little bit reckless. Did he look reckless in that 15 seconds? And that's what we were talking about here, 15 seconds. Yes, he did. He did. And he got tagged a few times for it. He did. But you can't say much more than that. It could turn out that they fight again, and he fights recklessly, and he gets knocked out, and you're like, oh, right. So that 15 seconds was indicative. Or it could have been that he would have been rocked and then changed his tactics about a minute or so through. I've seen a lot of fights where guys get kind of punched early, and they're like, oh, wait a second. I can't do these kinds of things. Let me go to a second, third kind of offense here. See what that does. And and they go on from there. So I recognize that, yes, for sure, I was like, mm, I don't know if I like what I'm seeing here. This is a little bit off, but 
not the end of the world and, and not as determinative as you might imagine. All right, if you've got a uh, donation, I'll take a look at it now. And again, please don't feel any obligation. But if you do, I will try and work that out for you. Uh, let's see. Yeah. All right. Luke, I know you hate pro wrestling, but if Nate were to withstand the onslaught and then slap on a triangle and he puts him to sleep whilst flipping him off, that would be glorious, no? Yes, but that wouldn't be... That wouldn't be pro wrestling. That would just be real life. <laughs> <coughs> Ilya Toporia should fight Patty next. It's an interesting one. Because uh, Toporia would be coming up a weight class, right? I mean, I know he can fight 155, but I think he's naturally better at 145. It's an interesting one. Uh, you mentioned you weren't overly interested in Blood Diamond's fight. Have you seen any footage of him outside of UFC? I've not seen anyone throw like him. A little bit. I've seen a little bit. Nothing. I'm, I'm not like I'm not in any way an expert. Um, I just saw that first fight and I was like, and I said this about Tuesday's Contender series. It's not sometimes okay. Sometimes actually a lot of times, it can be a question of good or bad. Is this fighter good? Is this fighter bad? Um, but when someone's making their UFC debut, I'm more, especially if they have like a very famous team or friends, like obviously Izzy is one of his guys, I'm going to, I'm going to try and give them the benefit of the doubt and say it's more going to be a function of green or not green. Like how developed in their own process are they? He looked, he looked to me to be very underdeveloped for MMA purposes when I saw him, but we shall see. Analysts are predicting a global recession in the near future outlooks. What kind of effects on an impending recession on MMA as a whole? So we, I've lived through two recessions already, uh, watching, I think, at least two. Um, definitely the big one around um, the crash of uh, 2008. But um, it's a little more resilient than you might imagine. Uh, the reason being is because watching a pay-per-view with friends is a collective effort. And there actually is some research to indicate that UFCs, they have put out research that says, oh, let me put my chair in a fixed position. They have put out research that kind of indicates that up to, I think they have on average 10 people at home. Um, the average group that's watching a pay-per-view is 10 people. And I, I tend to think that's probably overstated. But when they say that this is something where costs can be pooled for a night out, both in food and everything else, there actually is some research to prove that. We'll see what happens with pay-per-view prices. And again, that was also not in a world where people were paying exorbitant prices for streaming as it, the streaming prices have gone up. We're going to see if ESPN Plus ends up putting out an ad-supported tier and to what extent UFC events end up on that. I think that will be interesting to see. Um, but... The 2008 recession was bad, and MMA did okay. It did okay. Um, plus, there are UFC sponsors, but it's not like the fighters have a ton anyway, so you wouldn't necessarily be worried about losing them. Um, I'm not going to say MMA is in any way recession-proof. I don't think that's at all true, and that's extremely simplistic. But having seen a recession already, and a bad one at that, uh, MMA did okay. I think some of the things I would worry about is, you know, uh, again, what it would mean for subscriptions to streaming services. By the way, Showtime, which, which host Bellator would be one where you'd have to ask the same, similar kinds of questions. DAZN 
would be another one as well. And now that the zone is fully leading into pay per view, the zone pay per view, which is fucking hysterical. I cannot get over that. That to me is just like, and I'm a DAZN customer, so you can, I can, I can, as a customer, I can say what I want. I like DAZN, and they're signing, by the way, some MMA organizations again, which I'm really glad. They're signing one that's going to be in Bogota, Colombia, soon, called Naciones, I think Naciones, Naciones MMA. Um, can't wait to watch it. I'm going to watch it. I'm, I'm a DAZN customer, and I'm going to stay, continue to be one. But. They pitched their entire existence as the answer to pay-per-view, and here they are. So, fucking hysterical. Uh, but I, in terms of the recession, I do wonder wonder what it might do for folks who are... <coughs> excuse me. For, like, tickets to shows. It's not like PFL and Bellator are you know giant ticket sellers to begin with but how much would a hit affect them based on their revenue generation like there's a lot of questions about that but in terms of like the ufc's product i would say i'm more or less not super concerned why did people find hermanson's last fight boring he was active didn't grind out neutral positions had curtis hurt in round two i don't know what people want to watch thanks for any insight um they want to see Again, if you're looking for a sport to be an entertainment product and it is sold as one, I understand fans having an inclination towards being like, hey, this was insufficiently entertaining. I just think if you're going to watch MMA enough, it behooves you to understand how the sport works. And then once you understand how the sport works, you can look at an outcome like Hermanson Curtis and take that position, which is yours. The problem is that there are casual fans that just they want they they think they're buying a bag of heroin and they want it they want to get high from it and they didn't get high enough from it. It's you know I mean that's sort of a crude way of describing it, but it gets the it it it, it sort of gets to the heart of the issue. Do you find it as endly frustrating that the UFC has inaccurate tale of the tape stats? Cerrone's not six one. Ortega's underlisted. Can the UFC not invest in NFL-style measurements? Uh, well, also, remember, I, I Max was getting after me on Twitter about it. Uh, it was all in good fun. But I went through his catalog in preparation for the resume review that we did on him. And over time, his arms get shorter. <laughs> now, not in real life, but in how they were measured. It went from like 70 inches to 69.5-inch reach to like a 69-inch reach. You know, it just kept shrinking, and I'm like, what the fuck is this? And then I noticed it happened with Connor, too, where his height was all over the place. I, I just think that they try to do these. They don't have – yes, to answer the question, they need a more standardized version of measurement is, is really how this, how this should go. How about Patty versus Moicano? I think Moicano would fuck him up. Uh, Dober, that's an interesting one, or Riddell. I think all those guys would kind of give him a problem. Would be a big step up, but all winnable in different ways. Okay, I don't think he can beat Moicano at all. Um, a ground battle, I would favor Patty over Riddell, but on the feet, Riddell would take his lunch money. And even then, Dober's pretty well-rounded. I don't... Could be wrong. Maybe I am slow-rolling him too much. It might be a fair criticism. I don't think those are winnable fights right now. On a scale of 1 to BC's 90s references, how frustrating was Paul Craig's last performance? Not really. 
His style seems extremely labor-intensive and ill-suited for the current scoring system. Yeah, but he knows that. <laughs> like, he knows that better than anybody. He knows that 100%. And I, you're right. Like, it clearly is inadequate for the needs of a modern MMA game. Yeah, no, you're right. You're 100% right. But, but... What I would humbly say is he knows that and he just wants to do that anyway because he likes to fight that way. I sort of and he may, and he has he has pulled out surprise wins a number of times. I sort of have a begrudging respect for that to be honest with you. I get what you're saying like hey, work on the well-roundedness. Not everyone is trying to do that necessarily, you know. They yes, they want to be well-rounded, they want to win fights, but they want to win fights in ways that dude, it is mixed martial arts. There is a certain artistic creativity to it. We kind of lose sight of that sometimes. There is a little bit of that. We, we think of it as fans winning and losing very pragmatically. What is exactly the sort of the pragmatic steps you need to take to win? And there is something of a personality that drives fight styles. And this is one that tells you about his personality in, in some kind of way. And I don't think he wants to lose that. Um, now, maybe I'm covering for him and he actually does want to, but it seems that way, you know? What is a good video slash resource to learn about the evolution of the MMA scoring criteria? Here's one. It's not just the scoring criteria per se. Oops, hang on. Uh, this is a good one. Let's get it on by Big John McCarthy. Now, this is more about how MMA kind of came to be. Um, and it's not just the scoring criteria. In fact, the scoring criteria is part of it it's also much more the rules and all of the rules about hair pulling and everything but this will give you a good sense of MMA's evolution to this point and then after that any kind of modern resources from I think Mark Goddard has an online school um, there's journalists like Sean Sheehan of uh, Severe MMA as well as Aaron Bronsetter of, of Canada's TSN and some other places they really try to walk you through this stuff um, but start at that book and see where it takes you Uh, can you share your YouTube RPM or CPM? I haven't looked at that in a while because I don't. Since I don't upload as much um, content, I have not paid as much attention to it. Let's see. What is my CPM? <laughs> this can't be right. <clears throat> but it says my CPM is uh, 20 bucks. I don't think that's right. Or it could be because of the live chat. But that's not accurate. That's because I don't put out... Uh, there are ads on this video, but there is a donation component, so that's going to skew it. So it would be better if I uploaded more videos and then took out the ones that get donations, and that would give you a much more accurate sense because that's vastly inflated over what it actually should be. More rapid fires at the end, I will. Uh, between Shavkat, Hamzat, and Brady, who is the furthest along at this moment? Well, okay. Um, Hamzat is actually, like, what is he, number two in the division? So in that sense, he's further along. I'd say Shavkat, of all three, is the most finished product. But I think that Brady has more room to grow than all three. So who do you believe will ultimately have the best career? That's impossible to fucking say. Shavkat is the most put together of all three, but all three are still untested is not the right word, but we don't really know how they would do continuously against the upper 
limit of that division against the top five guys. Well, now we're going to figure out pretty soon. Not so much for Hamzat, but for Shavkat with his... Well, we'll see how he does next. But Brady's going to take on Bilal Muhammad. That's going to tell us a lot. Uh, someone says, Which are some good amateur promotions in the DMV area where you can get an amateur fight as a novice if you're interested? Is it Cagezilla? Cagezilla is by far going to be your best. Um, they have asked me to work for them a number of times, and I really would like to. I, I would love to do commentary for them, but I just don't have the time. I just really don't have the time because it's often on nights where it's a UFC night, which means I need to give my attention to that, particularly if it's a pay-per-view or, you know, if Showtime is making me travel for something and it's a big Showtime boxing event. I tell you, I would love to call fights for Cagezilla. I really mean that. And I have in the past. I, in fact, I called one of Sadiq Youssef's um, amateur fights. Even then, I was like, holy fucking shit, this guy's going to beat up a lot of people. He was one of those dudes, when I first saw him compete, I was like, Right. Okay. <laughs> There's a couple. It, it doesn't. It, it, there are sometimes I have I have seen guys make their way through the ranks, and I wasn't sure if they, if they were going to make the UFC. You know, it was a little bit unclear. And sometimes they did, and I was really wrong about it. A lot of times I wasn't. And then there are guys that come along, and you're like, oh right, they're going to make to the UFC like that. He was one of those. I was I was very impressed. I, I, he didn't need to have as many amateur fights as he did. Not that he was like sandbagging. I think he was trying to work on his development, but he was ready for stiffer competition pretty quickly. Um, there was Donald Cowboy had like an amateur series around here as well. I don't know if they are still in business since the pandemic. Um, a lot of people from this area will go to Shogun fights. No, that's for amateurs. I don't know if Shogun does amateurs. I know they usually do like mid-level pros. Um, they might do some amateurs somewhere along the lines. There used to be a lot more of them around here, and they uh, since the pandemic, I'm not sure what happened to them all. Um, a lot of guys go to Jersey for you know for a lot of their promotions up there because obviously in New Jersey Athletic Control Board, and there's a, you know it's just a powerhouse Jersey is for talent. So, but Cagezilla would be the big one in this area for sure. Cagezilla. Uh, Islam and Oliveira are going to have a tough time at the top. Next gen is Armand Moises. And they seem like they will be beasts in their prime. They are young. Yeah, but like Moises just got his ass whooped. What are your thoughts on most boxing fans and MMA and media writing off, underestimating Triple G versus Canelo? Can you break down that great fight? I don't know if they're on. Uh, well, I, I would tell you I'm interested in seeing it. The problem is that Canelo may have gotten away with one in the first fight. I thought Canelo was the rightful winner in the second one, but it was close. The problem is, since the time that has elapsed, I know Canelo is coming off of the Bivol loss, but that's a guy at 175, for crying out loud. You know, we're talking more like 160 around this, these parts. I believe they're going to have it at strictly middleweight, not super. Canelo unified at super middleweight, right, in the time being, when he beat Caleb Plant to finish out that, after breaking the inside of the eye socket of Billy Joe Saunders, right, that whole bit. The issue is that Canelo has entered his prime as Triple G has kind of exited out of it. Now, that doesn't make it not winnable. That doesn't do any of those things. But, like, you know, I know there's going to be people who tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. I don't give a shit. I thought Derevyanchenko beat him or, at a bare minimum, pushed him to his absolute fucking limit. And now Derevyanchenko, I'm calling one of his fights for Showtime on Saturday on the prelims. You know, now he's taking some a lot of abuse and, and that Charlo fight was tough at the double header and he's fought, you know, he's he, Danny Jacobs. He's fought a lot of big punchers and shit, but, um, 
And then he fought Murata in his comeback after a long layoff, and he did look good in the end, for sure. But he got a bit of a slow start. He looked a little bit like he was suffering to the body. And Murata's a good fighter. You know, Murata has a big punch, and he was hurting him. But it just felt like you could tell he was visibly older. He was visibly older. And it's like, if you couldn't win the first time, because maybe Vegas screwed you, if that's what you want to say. And second one was close. I thought Canelo won, but second one was close. It has only, his physical gifts have only deteriorated, while Canelo's physical gifts and skills have only gotten better. What would be the reason to think he could get it done a third time? Now, of course, it wasn't, I think, until the fourth time that Pacquiao and Marquez fought where Pacquiao put his fucking lights out. Now, Pacquiao, excuse me, Marquez also looked like he had been using uh, creatine the whole time. I'll say, but I don't know that. And it's hard to judge exactly and whatever, but so it's not, you know, and, 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 uh, let's see, uh, uh, who was it? Rampage beat Vanderlei in their trilogy uh, in the third one. Right. So there was that as well, but, uh, it's just that for, if he was going to beat Canelo, the feeling is that it would have happened in the first or second time. Now that he's, I think 40, and Canelo's like, what, 32? I had to double check. So I'm somewhere, you can dead wrong me if I'm wrong, but somewhere around there, it just feels like this is his least decent chance of getting it done. And by the way, it's not riding like riding a horse. It's writing like riding off your taxes. Luke, if PFL find a way to sign Nate Diaz, you can stop there. They're not gonna. You can stop right there. Let me put, let me put it to you this way. I've not talked to Nate. I've talked to people close to Nate, but I've not talked to Nate. I'd put the chance of him going to PFL somewhere around negative 8 billion percent. Give or take. (laughs) Give or take. Somewhere around negative 8 billion percent. And that's not me slandering PFL. They don't have anything to offer him. Like, I don't know how many big fights he has left. I think he would much prefer to box. I don't know what's going to happen with Jake Paul and Asim Rockman Jr. I think Rockman Jr. is going to, I think Rockman Jr. might hurt him. I think Rockman Jr. might win. We'll see, because he has to get drained with the weight, and that could change everything. But skill for skill, Rockman Jr. is far better than him. Um, so I don't know what's gonna what that's going to do. But he can make... I mean, if Jake comes out of that reasonably unscathed, and the fight against Hamzad is not a total disaster, and even then, if, even if then, we talked about this last week, even if both are still disasters, there's still a huge potential for both. Dude, that's going to sell over a million buys. There's nothing PFL could do for him where he could sell a million pay-per-view buys. And, by the way, I mean, I know they can say 50%, but, like, he's going to have so much control over that show and so much revenue in ways that there's just there's nothing else that could make him that kind of money. You know? So, like, people shitting on Jake Paul, it's like, I'm not saying he's doing Nate a favor or that you have to watch or like it, but... That opportunity, being what it is, is going to get Nate arguably the biggest payday of his career, even more than what he got with Connor. Well, depending on how it sales and, and all the things that line up, and given his share of the revenue, right? He he could make an absolute fucking fortune. He can have his own sponsors. I mean, it, 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 it's he's gonna he's gonna clean up, and good for him. He should. <laughs> can we get your Mount Rushmore of BBLs? I don't know if I even have a Mount Rushmore. Who are the ones? That I have uh, pined for over the years. Um, Sofia Vergara. Salma Hayek. 
Um, Vita Guerra. She was the original. I'll give you one more. It would be, oh, Miss Dolly Castro. Y'all know her? Yeah, you can put her on the, on the old Mount Rushmore. There you go. Um, if Devison leaves the 125 division, could he fight Garbrandt? He could fight Garbrandt at 125. I mean, yeah, he could fight anyone. Sure. Uh, let's see if there's any more of these, and then we'll go do some quick hitters. And we'll call it a day. All right, one more. Hey, Lukey Marks. <laughs> Any thoughts of Cedric Dumbay, former Glory Welterweight Hammer, fighting in Paris? Yeah, I, you know, I think he only has two or three MMA fights, not that many. Obviously, he's got a story kickboxing career. That dude's an absolute beast of a striker. Clever, can set things up in all kinds of different ways. I don't know how fully vetted the rest of his game is. But if you're asking about someone with a kickboxing style that I think could translate really well to MMA, Dumbay would be at or near the top of that list. He is that good. He is he is appointment viewing for sure. If for no other reason than just to see how it goes and see how ready he is. But uh, yeah, I would love to see. I'd love to see exactly how he looks. All right, let's go back and do these real quick. Some rapid fire. Hang on. Some rapid fire. And then we will wrap this up. All right, let's go. Uh, let's see. Luke out here looking like, from the picture I posted for the community thread, like he's been nominated for Country Album of the Year. <laughs> it's funny. Let's see, what else we got? All right, most influential book, movie, and college course that you read, watched, and took. Most influential book would be uh, Anarchy State and Utopia. Movie would be, again, this is very easy, uh, Ron by Akira Kurosawa, College Course. I will tell you. Here it is. This one. An Introduction to Symbolic Logic. Boy, let me tell you, this was not easy. This was not easy. This was quite difficult. Uh, and this is just the basic intro to it. It goes significantly more complex. In fact, once you get to advanced symbolic logic, um, and these are truth tables with P and Q and everything, and it looks somewhat straightforward. These are not, these are not simple puzzles to solve under any stretch of the imagination. Um, and, yeah, like... You can see it's it's the actual logic that goes into various forms of reasoning. This is predicate logic. Um, I had kind of... It was funny. The people who were good at computer programming were actually really good at this course, and I had never done anything with computer programming. My first test in this course, after a month, I failed. But then I ended up getting like a B plus. I was so mad. I was so trying to get an A in this course. But because I had done so poorly up front, it, it fucked me on the back end. By the end of the course, I was cruising. I was cruising. And I did really well. And then I actually took the class after this. And I did get an A in that one, which was advanced symbolic logic. And then you have to do axiomatic proofs all the way down. Those are extremely difficult to do. But just to get my brain wrapped around some of this stuff, it was actually really, really hard. But it got me to understand a certain clarity of thinking, a clarity of um, both sentence construction, argument construction, how... 
justifiable are these arguments? How internally consistent are they? It was really quite an eye-opener. And I think that the fact that it was the eye-opener was the part that was so hard for me at first. Luke, has your admiration of Glenn Greenwald wavered at all recently? Yes. For example, he recently hosted a PR Q&A event with Alex Jones and asked him mostly flattering questions. Yeah, I found that to be um, distasteful to the point of pathetic. Um, I do like Glenn still. I still think he does a lot of important work, but that was really disappointing. Really disappointing. Uh, let's see. Uh, if uh, When Hamzat fights Nate, it will have been less than six months since the war with Burns. On the other hand, Nate hasn't taken any damage since 2021. June 2021, do you think people are overlooking the lingering effects of that Burns fight? Probably not because he hasn't taken that much damage overall. Um, he's still young enough where it doesn't matter as much. Look, I hear a lot of people talking about Nunez's loss to Pena being contributed to the grappling in the first round and Pena then putting on the pressure and landing on Nunez, leading to her gas and consequently tapping to a submission that wasn't fully locked in. My question is, do you think other, another major factor to her gassing to the Pena fight was her last bantamweight fight was in 2019, and of course she had to change all the weight around. Yes, for sure that played a role as well. Coolest target I ever blew up in the Marines. I don't know about, well, I mean, I called in, call for fire on tanks and stuff like that. That was pretty cool. But again, I've always said, it was the coolest thing I've ever fired. I've pulled the lanyard on a howitzer 155, and that, you know, that sent the rounds downrange. But the big one was um, the Mark 19. The Mark 19 is set on a tripod. It's this giant weapon with a huge barrel and it has a butterfly trigger, so it's two handles here, and then the and then the trigger itself looks like what I'm painting here. So you put your fingers on your thumbs on top of it, and it's belt-fed grenades. It's belt-fed, so it's and it's all grenades you're firing. That'll that'll put some hair in your chest. That's pretty fucking great. Like a a belt-fed grenade launcher with a butterfly trigger from a seated, seated position, bitch. You just unload the damage on that thing. That thing was great. If you ever come to Scotland, let me know and I'll buy you a drink. Would love to. Um, do you think Real Madrid need a backup striker to Benzema or is Mariano enough? Mariano, I think they're, they sent him on his way anyway. No, he's not enough. Uh, there's Rodrigo, obviously, who's pretty great as well. No, they need a backup striker for sure. By the way, you see you see old Barcelona, like we can't even pay the Yong's fucking wages and then they're signing every fucker on earth. It's like I can't wait to see that house of cards come apart because you know it's going to end poorly. Um, how could Cody Garbrandt have one of the greatest defensive performances ever against Dom Cruz yet show very little defense in every fight since I've asked people around him and they all say it's been the coaching changes I'm not entirely sure how true that is but I've heard that more than once um, why does your channel have plenty of subscribers and solid views, but the lack of sponsorship? I get offers all the time. I usually just don't even reply. Biggest career goal you want to accomplish within the next five years? I would like to have a steadier television gig, whether it's boxing or MMA. I don't know how doable that is, to be honest with you. That might even be a pipe dream, but I would like. I would like. I would like to see if I. I would like to see if it's possible. All right, one more. One more. One more. All right. Hey, Luke, given Dana White's rant at the end of the Contender Series last night, do you think fighters with a more tactical or clinch grapple heavy game are going to be dissuaded from fighting that way they typically would in hopes of getting a contract? Maybe. It's possible. 
I understand it's an entertainment business, but only rewarding the guy who got a KO and nobody else has to be a little disheartening for fighters who may have a harder time producing a result like that. You know, in general, I'm sympathetic to that argument, but I'm sorry, those guys were green. I did not think there was a lot of people who are UFC ready. Now, there was a couple of them. The guy Castro, he probably will end up in the UFC sooner or later. He looked like he didn't have the best performance in the world, but um, the tape on him more generally is good. And then that kid out of uh, Ray Longo's gym, Bazookia, he looks like he also will be in the UFC before too long, give or take. Um, just made a lot of decisions in key moments, though. And he even tweeted about it. It's not even me just being critical. Like He even tweeted about it being like, ah, there was things I wish I could have done differently in these key intervals. There was some decision-making there in that contest. And that dude Romero was all over him. But the reality is this, man. There's a lot of those dudes who just were not ready. They were not ready at all. And you could say, what does it mean to be UFC level? It is a fluid and unclear thing. But if you know, if you're able to get a lot of, and you know, you can see this in, in, in UFC fights where guys get takedowns and they can't do a whole lot with it. But one one of the sort of key things that I pay attention to where people in the regional scene is um, you know, these guys who can get takedowns and then they can't really do a whole lot with it. They don't pass guard that much. They don't really ever threaten with any kind of thing from there. They're just good at like control positions and there's nothing really beyond that. And not because they just elected to not do more, but because they actually can't. Like they get stuck in certain situations. You see that a lot. You're not ready. You're not ready. Or like if they take a, they, you know, I mean, you have to, <clears throat> there's a big question if like, <coughs> excuse me, there's a lot of people in the UFC who may not be in there, but for the fact that they might be kind of popular, you know, and, or, you know, relevant to a home market or something like that. But um, I just didn't see a lot of UFC ready talent. I didn't. You know, you have to have a certain degree of polish and danger to your game to make it through that show. I recognize that they put artificial pressures, but that's that's a problem that they have, um, a lot of those guys. I, I actually didn't disagree with Dana at all. At all. All right. As a reminder, there you go. Thumbs up. This will be up on podcast tonight slash tomorrow morning. Thank you guys so much for watching. I greatly appreciate it. If you have any questions, email me. LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. There's a whole slate of you who have emailed me. I have starred all of your emails. I will get back to you in about the next week. This past week has been crazy. I have a video. I have to, I have to travel tomorrow, and then I got to do the Showtime thing. Then I have to worry about MK next week when BC is gone, and then I have to do go back to New York again for the Jake Paul stuff. Like I got a lot of shit going on, so it's been a little bit of a challenge, but I'm working on it. I'm working on it, so it will, I will get back to you. But thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, until next time, bitches. Uh, let me pull it up here. Where is it? Where is it? Oh, yeah. Stay frosty. <laughs>